Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Man, really excited about today's conversation. Paul Jenkins is back. Paul has been coming on Word Balloon. I'm pretty certain that I had Paul on within the first year of Word Balloon. And uh, it's been a wonderful multi-year discussion and acquaintance. And uh, dare I say, calling uh, Paul a friend because I have relied on his point of view to uh, push Word Balloon on and some of my other freelance projects. And plus, his career in itself has been wonderful to see. And uh, you know something? Uh, This episode is uh, brought to you by Aftershock Comics. And uh, I'm going to read from uh, their bio on Paul. He's been creating, writing, and building franchises for over 20 years in the graphic novel, film, and video game industries. Over the last two decades, Paul's been instrumental in the creation and implementation of literally hundreds of world-renowned, recognizable entertainment icons. Spider-Man, Captain America, The Century, creating The Century. We even talk a little bit about that in this conversation, as we have before. From his employment with the creators of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at the age of 22, to his status as an IP creator, Paul has provided entertainment entertainment to the through to the world through hundreds of print publications films video games and new media six platinum selling video games a number one mtv music video he's an eisner award winner five-time wizard fan award winner and multiple best-selling graphic novels he's synonymous with success he's enjoyed recognition on the new york times bestseller list he's been nominated for two bafta awards and he's been the recipient of government-sponsored prism award for his contributions in storytelling and characterization and uh, man, Inhumans, uh, Civil War Frontlines, Captain America Theater of War, of course, The Century, wonderful work on Batman and Hellblazer for DC Comics, Spider Man, The Hulk, Wolverine Origin. You know, God, you know, the writer of Wolverine Origin. Again, stuff we've talked about before. But uh, right now, he's doing excellent work for Aftershock Comics. We talk about his various series for Aftershock, including the current Beyonders, him and Wesley St. Clair. Uh, Marshall Dillon, our buddy, doing the lettering on that. Wesley doing the coloring as well as the art. And, uh, man, I'll tell you, this is a great series. A young boy obsessed with crop circles and cryptography find his boring life turned upside down when he discovers that all of his conspiracy theories are true, sending him on the ultimate treasure hunt for an ancient secret spanning thousands of years. Good stuff, man. Uh, It's excellent. What are the connections between a lost mountaineer an indecipherable manuscript, and the lost library of Alexandria. How is this connected to a one-eyed, flatulent Welsh corgi and endless plates of corned beef sandwiches? You'll find out in Beyonders. The first three issues are out right now, and uh, it's, it's a great series, and I'm really happy to talk to Paul about that, along with his other Aftershock series, Alters, which got some controversy, and we'll talk about that in the conversation. And his first series for Aftershock, Replica. All in today's conversation with Paul, he talks about the comic book market and really the storytelling market that we find ourselves in today, which even encompasses things like Word Balloon. Really great perspective from Paul Jenkins in our conversation today on Word Balloon. Word Balloon brought to you today by Aftershock Comics uh, of shaking things up at your local comic shop right now. Great hit series, Animosity, Marguerite Bennett, Raphael de la Tour, Donnie Cates and Gary Brown giving you baby teeth. Uh, Other great books like uh, Jimmy's Bastards from Garth Ennis. So many great ones. Also Walk from Hell by Garth Ennis and Goran Suzuka. So really neat titles, 
great ideas, all from Aftershock Comics. In the weeks ahead, we'll be talking to more Aftershock creators about their books. You don't have to wait, though. Go to the website. First of all, while you're listening to me and Paul talk, check out full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on these books to order through your local comic shop at AftershockComics.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. October was a busy month uh, with New York Comic Con, and uh, I got to say thank you to you, uh, many of you directly who were attending the convention. Thank you. It really makes it easier to get to the conventions uh, through your subscriptions to Word Balloon. Uh, Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But if you like what I do and want to help out the cause, uh, you can subscribe to Word Balloon via Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash wordballoon, or uh, you can click on the Patreon ad at my website, wordballoon.com. Thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners. Okay, without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Paul Jenkins today on Word Balloon. It is great to catch up with Paul Jenkins. Man, it's been a couple years, but uh, you're, you're one of my original, uh, I think, first-year Word Balloon guests, Paul, and, uh, and I'm happy to come back because you are always bursting with projects and I think uh, is one of the uh, people that really have a, a clear idea of what's going on in the pop culture market. So it's always interesting to get your point of view. And welcome back. Thanks, man. It's, it's always good to talk to you. Um, so you're with Aftershock Comics. And full disclosure, Aftershock's been sponsoring Word Balloon the last couple months. And when I looked at their uh, group of uh, creators, I was like, oh, that's awesome. Paul's, Paul's there. So I was just telling you off the air, yeah, Steve Rotterdam is like, you know, um, hey, would you be interested in talking to Paul Jenkins? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I've done it many times, so good excuse to uh, catch up with everything. So, yeah, man, three different um, projects that you've done with them so far. Um, so, yeah. I want the the current one is Beyonders, and you're three issues yeah. in. So, uh, mm-hmm. so give everybody the 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 ten cent pitch on Beyonders. Okay, so Beyonders is um, it sort of speaks to my lifelong love of treasure hunts. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a book that came out in Great Britain. Uh, it was called Masquerade. And it was basically um, a guy had buried a golden rabbit that he had made somewhere in Great Britain. And he published this book of, of pictures, like paintings that he drew. Um, and you were supposed to just look at the paintings and look at the clues that may be hidden in them and read the words and find this golden rabbit. And it became a cultural phenomenon like no other. Wow. Everybody wanted, yeah, this thing was great. Um, so this, the beautiful part of it was that it was such an elegant um, cl- set of clues, you know? It was a really cool mystery. Um, it was really amazingly done. The paintings are beautiful. But the sad part was that somebody cheated to find the rabbit in the end. Oh. No one could find the rabbit. And turns out that his art assistant had a boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever, and told them where it was buried, and they told somewhere else, someone else, and they went and they dug this rabbit up. Um, but I was so in love with this thing. I thought it was such an amazing, um, amazing endeavor, and it captured everybody's imaginations. And f- from that point on, then, obviously, when I was young, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, and the next thing you know, there I am. Uh, and I'm really into treasure hunts, right? <laughs> so Beyond, Beyonders is about a boy called Jake. Um, and he feels that things must be connected somehow. He lives in Alaska. He has this little Welsh corgi um, called Shadwell, who's actually based on my Welsh corgi. 
Um, <laughs> and Shadwell has one eye. He has a little eye patch, and he's very flatulent. <laughs> and so this kid, this kid, <laughs> and this kid lives in Alaska, and he just he just he loves crop circles, and he loves ancient writing and the 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 mysteries of the lines in Nazca lines in Peru and. Uh, you know, he put Stonehenge and all this stuff, but he, he just feels like there's more to the universe than his crappy life in Alaska. And he lives there with his aunt and uncle. I um, mean, I won't give spoilers to the story, but basically this is one of those stories where you wish for something. And then when you find out it's all true, he basically finds out that all conspiracies are true and they're basically all connected. And when he finds that out, he gets exactly what he wants, which is never what people actually want. And it turns his life upside down. That sounds great, man. No, that's excellent. Do you remember, I don't know if this got to Britain or not, there was a show that came off of, uh, a television show in America that came off of Raiders, and it was called Tales of the Gold Monkey. Oh, I wish. I wish. No, I don't remember that one. That's okay. okay, and it, 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 literally, it literally had this, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, an, um, a seaplane uh, captain that was a cargo plane guy, and it's funny, he had a... He had a dog. Uh, this was done in the late 30s, so the Nazis are around, but it's you know before America got involved in the war. And um, he had a dog named Jake, and it was it was a one-eyed dog with an eye patch. And he lost are you the dogs. Me? What's that? I no swear to God. You... Yeah, isn't that? It's, hey man, the Zeitgeist. That's what I'm saying. And that's what? why immediately I'm like, oh, that's like Tales of the Gold Monkey in a, in a good way, man. Oh my god. Okay. And, oh, you know, wow. yeah, it was, okay. It was fun for what it was. You know, I mean, it was totally like this. Throwaway show, like I said, they saw you know they saw Raiders. They they wanted to capitalize on it, and it was fun. It was the guy who played um, Decker in the first Star Trek movie. Steve Collins was the, oh, was, right, was, cool. the was the airplane pilot, and uh, yeah, it was great. It was fun. Uh, to- totally fun show. And yeah, only well the other thing, the the other thing that's fun, John, is that um, part of what we love about the book is that not only is it about the ultimate treasure hunt but each panel has a clue to a treasure hunt in it. So if you actually read the book, um, you can decipher the clues. And if you decipher the clues, you can um, basically unlock the treasure hunt. And then there are these awesome prizes for people uh, at the end of the series. Hilarious. That's fa- So it's yeah. a finite series. Is that the plan? Uh, no, it's just the first five issues of the series right now. Okay. Um, and then like anything else, I mean, as, as is always the case, you know, you have to see how it goes and see if it's doing well. And hopefully we get to do more, but it's planned for a really long time. But the, the first arc ends in a cool place. You know? Excellent, man. No, that's cool. So what made you want to do this with Aftershock? And I know you'd been working with them prior to that, but let's start with the beginnings of, of your involvement with Aftershock. Well, you know, I've known Joe Pruitt, the publisher, for a really long time. I actually um, um, sort of gave him his first job in the business when I was at Tundra Publishing years ago. And, oh, um, I didn't realize that. That's cool. Yeah, I met Joe at DragonCon in Atlanta. Um, Kevin Eastman and I were invited down, and DragonCon was just starting up in those days. It was like 1990, I think. Uh, 1989, maybe. And uh, we sort of... We showed up not knowing what was going on, and we found out that we knew nothing because this place was insane. You know, like there's all these people dressed like wizards and playing games. And sure. <laughs> they put us, um, Mirage Studios, they put me and Kevin halfway up the stairs in a hotel. So our, our booth was literally halfway up a staircase. 
And we thought this was the greatest thing ever. We just cracked up laughing and said, okay, great. We're going to spend the whole time like halfway up a staircase, like with lines of people trying to get signatures. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I was in a bar and uh, having a drink or something at the end of the day after a long convention day. And Joe Pruitt, who was very young at the time, said, hey, man, let me buy you a drink. I, you know, I'd love to talk to you about what's going on. But he didn't hit me up for anything. He just wanted to chat about comics. Okay. Um, so we got to know each other. And then, you know, many years later, Joe told me he was starting up a new company. And I, I sort of talked it through with him and told him what I knew from my experiences at Tundra and sure. other companies I'd worked at. Um, and then things took off. Um, so actually, I became the very first book. My first book, Replica, was the very first book that Aftershock published. Holy cow. So that was the clone book that you did for them, Replica. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and obviously uh, people could pick up the trade of uh, replicas. Was it was it more than one volume? How many volumes of replicas did you do? It was just one volume. Um, the, the one thing about that book, and this is, I, mean, I know the owners will always say this, uh, like Lee and John Kramer, uh, they'll always say this. That was like their favorite book, even to this day. Um, I love that book. It was so funny, and it had such a great voice. And Andy Clark was the artist, and he did did an amazing job he was the perfect guy for it but you know new new publishing company very first book it just you know it just didn't find an audience because people were not even thinking about buying an aftershock book in those days you know um so you know we did five issues and we were like we're just we're not gonna be able to do any more right now um but i love it and they love it and at the right time we will absolutely do more of those books because we all love that thing. I even wrote a couple that haven't been published yet. So we will go back to that book and we will make it again. And I fully expect that there's more replica in my future. I know that for a fact. That's excellent. And that's basically just a guy who, as I remember, uh, you know, wanted to kind of make his life easier. So let's clone ourselves. (laughs) Well, everything I write is autobiographical, right? So, um, <laughs> so it was, it was a detective on a space station, and he works with a bunch of really, really stupid but quite sweet aliens that that don't really understand how to follow human law. So part of it is a is like a buddy cop movie where he's got this really, really dim-witted but loyal um, partner called Vorgas, and everybody loves Vorgas. Um, so Vorgas's thing that he, he you know, he just kind of like ultra violent. He'll blow people away and then go, "Oh yeah, sorry, Trevor." Um, you know, stop or I fire, you know, and of course he's like 10 minutes too late and, you know, they're pulling away the bodies at that point. Um, so because Trevor, the, the, the main character, he just can't take it anymore. He makes this decision. I know I'll have someone I can rely on. I'll clone myself. And, and there are two problems. Problem number one is if you met yourself, you would immediately hate yourself. Um, and, and problem number two is he accidentally clones himself 50 times. And, at that point, there's 50 of him running around, and each one of them is an aspect of his personality. Um, so there's one that's very organized, one that's very disorganized, uh, one who is a, one who is really, really clever, one that is better looking than him, even though it looks exactly so. It's one that's like the, uh, the, the ultimate achieving. Right? Um, and this book was just hilarious. Every time we would have a clone, we would tell their story. It would be the story of clone number two was in issue number two. The story of clone number three was in issue number three. And this thing just had a really so fun, so funny. And, um, you know, I, I know that we're going to see more replica in our future. That's awesome, man. 
That's hilarious. Very, very cool. And then Alters, uh, mm-hmm. the second volume just wrapped up uh, over the summer. And that's yeah. an ambitious book. And I and uh, as a as a cisgender you know male, it's interesting that you've uh, decided to do a, a transgender hero story. Right. Well, think of it like this, okay? Um, it's not like I didn't expect that. Perhaps people may have that question. Yeah. Um, who am I to write this book? And we're going to get to that in a second in okay. this conversation. Sure. But, but understand that my job wasn't to be transgender. If, if I just write who I am, then the world is going to get a lot of stories about a middle-aged heterosexual white guy who likes to play golf. Yeah. You know, enjoy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we don't write who we are, if that were to be the qualifier, I'm therefore disqualified for writing a single female character, right? Yeah. And, you know, I felt very strongly about this because I knew the challenge, but the way that I approached it, I hope, was the right way, which is to say to people, I understand the challenge, um, but why don't we treat this for everyone as, as an opportunity to also learn about each other? You know, I do. Um, I think I know some things about the trans community. I have a couple of friends who are trans. Um, enough, and I'm going to learn more. And so I put a thing onto the book that started everything, which is each issue was read by six different people who were consultants of mine. And each of those people who were trans gave me advice and insight and helped me to write the book. That's great. Um, yep. So it's the hardest book I've ever written. It took a ton of rewrites. But that being said, um, I was never going to pander to anybody. And the concept happens to have a transgender main character, but it's not about LGBT issues. It's not an LGBT book. Um. The original pitch was made to Marvel and DC many years ago. Um, and just like the Sentry, they turned it down all the time. Interesting. I pitched the Sentry, I pitched the Sentry for six or seven years. They always turned it down. I finally you know, won an Eisner with the Inhumans, and they said, oh, okay, we'll do that book. And it ended up doing well. <laughs> yeah. this, this pitch began life as um, an idea that I wanted to give people – with a disadvantage in society, some kind of um, hyper advantage, like a mutant power. Mm-hmm. So it originally began life as a, as a pitch for the X-Men. Um, you know, what if I can create a team of people who have a, cre- a really, really difficult advantage, disadvantage, um, whether it be that they are trans or homeless or have a physical injury or mental health issue or PTSD, and then we give them the hyper ability because the story is always going to be the collision of forces in the middle where the human being resides. And all I ever got from Marvel and DC was, we love that. And the other thing I got was, you know, we can't do new characters. It just doesn't work that way anymore. Wow. Um, my, wow. my argument with Marvel was always, well, we did the century and that did fine. And they're like, yeah, that, that was a one-off. You're like, it wasn't a one-off. Like, new characters get 
whatever, you know, it's, I, d- I didn't agree, but I understood that they liked it, but they weren't able to really do a new set of characters. Um, so many years later, I was able to find the right publisher for the book, pitched it back to them. Um, Aftershock loved the concept. Um, they really did. And, and we set about making it. But you have to understand that, like, she happens to be the main character. She's trans. Um, she's living at the time of the story kind of as the middle brother of three in the eyes of her family, right? Mm-hmm. And she's begun the hormone therapy, and she's beginning to get ready to kind of explain to them, look, you know, um, things are changing, and this is who I really am, and this is who I am. And just as she's about to tell them, she gets a real big complication because she gets the alter power. It's like a super mutant power that people are getting around the world. Mm-hmm. And so she realizes, I can't really tell them right now. It's too complicated. So she really can only be who she is um, when she's in costume as Chalice. So this is the story of a young woman who can only be who she is when she's not who she is. Um, it was a cool conceit for the first arc, but understand that the second arc was all about a woman who is homeless who gets the power. Um, in her case, she has the ability to save the world, but she can't feed her own children. Wow. So <laughs> here's the thing. This is what came from all of this. Um, it was definitely a significant moment in my life. Um, something happened that hadn't happened in, in all the time that people know me. Um, so I would write these editorials, John, and I would say, hey, this month I'm going to introduce a person, you know, I'm going to interview them, ask them questions, and then I'm going to kind of write a little bit about what I learned this month about trans people, you know. Um, And we would do that in the first arc, and then when we got to the second arc, I interviewed a couple of homeless people and, you know, sort of continued the editorial. And then in the editorial of issue 10, I got to tell my story. And it's a story that people had never known. Um, You know... Certainly at my age, it's, it's, it's almost like that moment where I came out about my life. You know, I told, I kind of explained to people and I felt the need to do so because, um, I felt that there was a question, you know, who am I? So, so this is how the editorial went. Who am I to write about transgender? Who am I to write about homelessness? Who am I to write about, you know, physical illness or someone who's quadriplegic? What do I know? Well, when I was a kid, I was homeless twice. You know, I grew up in the poorest family that I've ever met. My father left my home when I was five. Um, my mom tried to raise two little boys on a farm. I grew up with gypsies. Um, we walked two miles to school because we couldn't afford the bus fare. And so I know how it feels to stare out of a window and see all that kind of helplessness of poverty. Um, what, people would never know that about me because they see me in America as having been a successful creator. But the first issue of uh, Wolverine origin is actually kind of autobiographical. Um, the boy who lives at the bottom of the hill and stares at the farm with the lights blazing at the top of the hill was me. Wow. Yeah, man. No, I, first of all, I, uh, I am in agreement. And as much as that is worth, and we always have to identify ourselves as middle-aged white guy speaking right now. But I'm glad that you're doing this, Paul, because, again, I think this is a current conversation amongst creative people and the initial inclination as 
everyone tries to respect the various um, orientations and people of color and all walks mm-hmm. of life, economic status, there is this uh, reflex of, hey, stay in your lane, like you said. Right. And I'm glad because I think that creative people have to explain that there is value for a story to come from someone that isn't of that orientation, that uh, economic status. Although, again, explaining your own point of view makes a lot of sense as far as the homeless thing. But, no, I, I, think, I think you're right. And also, uh, I'm glad it's, it's great that you are talking to other trans people to get their point of view because you want to get it right. And that's I, – I, I feel for a lot of, of – um, you know, uh, heterosexual, uh, especially male creators, but also female creators that do put stories out there and kind of get slapped down just from the standpoint of uh, who are you to tell the, our story? You're not one of us. And I and I think that, yeah, like you yeah. said, it's just that's very limiting and and also kind of unrealistic. I think it's fair to uh, hear voices beyond from your own uh, tribe, for a lack of a better word. And, and, you know, get these stories out there. By, by the same token, of course, trans creators, uh, people of color, various orientations, please tell your stories. But again, it's a, it's a big world out there. And, I, and I'm glad that you're, you know, willing to take that risk and also, you know, continue with your stories. I have a lot of things to say about this, right? Number one, when we did Alters, um, I purposely asked Aftershock to let me be the token middle-aged heterosexual white guy on the team. Um, Layla Lays is the artist. Okay. Um, and she, you know, lives in Italy. Um, Ryan Hill, she did the coloring, and Tamara Bonvalen did, did the coloring. She's trans. Tamara's awesome. We had a great team of people. Not only were we a great team of people, the, the, the book was great. And we demonstrated the type of inclusion that we spoke about. That's awesome. Um, so if you recall the, the way that the Assassin's Creed games are laid out, when you turn on the game, it says this game was created by a multi-faith team of many ethnic backgrounds and gender identities and so on, you know? Um, that's what we did. We wrote this, this book was created by a team of all ethnic backgrounds, genders, gender identities, etc., so that we could say it was, this was made by everybody. It's not this social justice warrior thing that people accuse it of being. For one thing, the story of Chalice was an interesting story about what is ultimately a metaphor for transgender, which is secret identity. Sure. Um, and that's a very superhero kind of story. Absolutely. So... I've, I've said it a lot, but, you know, for one thing, um, if we say that Shakespeare was disqualified from writing Othello because he wasn't a black Muslim dude, right. then we lost Othello, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I have this thought, and this is how I have always been, because what people didn't understand, and this was something I talked to the New York Times about, when when someone says, this is what you are, this is what you know, it can be very limiting. Yes, th- there's no sense in disqualifying heterosexual middle-aged white guys either, right? But this is an industry that has been 
perpetually dominated by heterosexual middle-aged white guys, and that needs to stop. Right. There's millions of types of people that, that need to tell their story. The male domination of the comic industry is, is patently fucking absurd. I hate it, and I've always hated it, and I've always railed against it. It's one of the reasons I'm really not much of, a, of an insider, you know? It's because I never liked the boys' club. I never participated in the boys' club, and that always made me a bit of an outsider. The problem was I happened to qualify for the boys' club. But the way that I have consistently spoken over the years, if you look at my run on Witchblade, you'll see that when I took her over, I'd actually said to Matt Hawkins, had asked me for a couple of years, would you be interested in the character? And I said, I would, mate, but here's what I would ask. Can we please draw her as a young woman um, who's a detective and not as a chick in a, in a silver catsuit that flies around? Yes. And her boobs fall out? Sure. Yeah, I'm okay. I mean, you want to draw sexy witchblades and draw pinups and sell the pinup book. But the fact was that I found her to be an interesting character because she was a young, attractive woman who was working as a detective for the NYPD. And I thought, wow, that's going to be filled with all kinds of issues and difficulties for her. Um, and so I, I kind of insisted, how about we put her in a T-shirt and jeans? I guarantee she's going to be just as gorgeous and sexy that way. So you get what you want. <laughs> but now we actually get to write stories about detectives. Yeah, and they agreed, and lo and behold, look what ended up being made into the TV show. That's exactly what I was going to say, Paul. Yeah, hell yes, and that was a great show. It's a shame that that star kind of self destructed because I really think mm -hmm. that show could have been even more than what it already was. Yeah, I think so. And, and so here we were, and you know, I've I've like been very consistent about that kind of thing, asking artists, "Hey, is there any chance we could populate this with?" with people instead of, you know, male and female models. Yeah. I, I understand, you know, I mean, the one thing I would say about the, the sort of way that women are portrayed is men are also portrayed as sex objects in those books too. You know, they're yes, all they are. completely in shape. And so, but, but it's, it gets a little absurd. There's a place for power girl, right? That's fine. But as long as there's a place for Power Girl, then there has to be a place for some other character. And when I see a book like Faith, I think, awesome. You know? Sure. That's cool. Yeah. But for perhaps one issue I have with it, which is it's, it's tough to think that people look at that and they go, yeah, yeah, that's about the fat girl. <laughs> right? And it's like, it's about the girl. It's about the, the young woman. You know? It's not. It's It's... You know, so so I see these problems always um, existing. I've always been vocal about it, and I've always tried to create around that. Um, and I've been given great opportunities to do so. If you recall the Inhumans, really the person who solves the problem amongst all of the the powerful men is Medusa. She's the one who sacrifices the most by allowing her hair to be cast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a function of being raised by a single feminist mother, but that feminism doesn't always have to translate to a specific type of activism. It can be that I choose to put that in the contents of the way that I write things because feminism should be about true specific equality, not any faction gaining dominance over the other. I understand what you're saying. Like I said. Yeah. I think uh <laughs> no, but honestly, man, again, 
This is why I like to talk to you because you are always thinking about these things. Now, what kind of response did that first volume of Walters get? It's, it's funny. It got a tremendous response. It got a, a really bad response from like two people who were very prominent in the trans community, as I understand. And it's a real shame that they chose to go that way. One of the things that I did was I saw a negative response at one point. And when I saw it, I reached out to the person who was trans and she had provided kind of a negative response. And I said, I would love it if you would join me um, and teach me more so that I can get better and better at this story. And she agreed and came in as a consultant. There was another person who was very prominent um, and she basically gave the book a zero out of 10 and said, basically, no way, this book shouldn't exist. Who the hell is this guy to dare to tell my story? Okay. And, um, and, and by the way, I'm not going to read this book. So review zero out of 10, I didn't read it. Wow. And I'm like, well, there you go with an agenda, right? Yeah. My response was to reach out uh, through someone that I happen to know who knew her, and the response I got back was very much a uh, no way in hell. Uh, not interested, don't want to talk to you. And I thought, okay, what I'm trying to do is to create an environment where it doesn't mean anything. And I'm going to say something in a minute that I hope will, will kind of provide meaning to what to, to the overall. But the bottom line was, um, I went to my first signing. We were targeted by the Westboro Baptist Church. I was so excited. Um, I felt like a, I felt like a, <laughs> I felt like I'd finally arrived. I hear you. <laughs> and there was there was. One thing that happened to me at that signing, we did it in North Carolina, and we did the North Carolina special edition, which we were really, really excited about because um, of what was going on with the bathroom bill. And at the signing, a group of art students came, and as I understood it, two of them were trans. And this young woman came up to me, and she had tears in her eyes. I kid you not, she had a tear in her eye. And she said, can I ask you something? And I said, yeah. She said will you promise me something that you will keep writing chalice because I got my character and I was so moved by it, John. That's great. And then she came up to me about three more times during the signing and said, will you please promise me that you're not lying to me? And I could see how much it meant to her. And I've now had any number of people. I've had uh, people take me to one side and say, I want to thank you. And I read Chalice and I love her and she's mine. I want to thank you. I want you to know that there's another form of um, gender fluidity, you might call it, that exists. And this is where I know that I am female, but I'm never going to show that outwardly because I don't feel I'm, I feel I'm too old to transition, Um, which I thought was like incredibly tragic, um, but understandable. And I'm having people come to me all the time and tell me how proud they are of me. And that they're grateful and they love their characters. There's a, the two people with cerebral palsy who told me how much they love the character of Teddy. And, and now a couple of people have come to me and said, man, you know, you wrote your editorial and you had to admit that you'd been homeless. And that's not how people see me. So yeah. I feel like all the alters can be is a good thing. You know, that's amazing, man. No, I'm glad to hear that. And honestly, uh, it's been my experience um, with the uh, trans community and the non-binary community 
that mm -hmm. uh, each person is an individual. How they want sure. to uh, be referred to is very individualistic, and uh, some are okay with the pronoun she, some are pro more, would prefer the pronoun they when talking mm -hmm. about themselves, and um, I, I respect that. And I think it is its own problem, for a lack of better word, because, again, I think sometimes uh, the way they feel about themselves, uh, they feel all, all should be represented by that same uh, way of dealing with them individually. And um, I, 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 like I said, I just feel like all the heterosexual writers that attempt to tell inclusive stories like what you're doing, you know, yeah, they, they'll get, they'll get rejection based on, you know, the, the smallest, uh, infraction in their minds. That is a, that, I mean, again, and also I feel for like the woman that you described that feels she's too old to transition because mm -hmm. that, that's gotta be, again, as a, as a straight middle-aged white guy, that's gotta be the worst feeling in the world to be uncomfortable with the person that you are. And to make this yeah. great choice, I absolutely, you know, respect it and want everyone to feel comfortable in their own skin and the way they choose to live their life. And and that's the least that we can all do. And I, th but again, it's so individualistic that I think sometimes with the best intentions, people can get easily offended. Well, you know, I find the fact that someone may not dig it or may be resistant to it. Um, very understandable. And so my response to any of those people was always the same. Uh, work with me, you know? Sure. Let me know, what, let me know what I didn't understand. I did find that every single trans person that I interviewed and I spoke to, of course, their stories were completely different. Um, one of them said to me something. Uh, she told me something. She, she was probably the primary consultant on the book. And she told me something that maybe one of the most like, heartbreaking things I ever heard. And I asked her, would you mind if I use that as a line? Because I don't even know how to, how to process it. She told me that when she stood in front of a mirror, um, when she was, I think when she was getting ready to transition and tell her family about everything, that she would stand in front of a mirror and that would be where she would say goodbye to her real face. Because her real face was the woman that she knew she was, but she would have to go back to sort of her family's understanding that she was male and so she'd have to say goodbye to her real face and I was just like I mean it, it literally made me cry to hear it I just sure. like God, you know what that's that's hard yeah and I have this thing you know I've got this Marty McFly thing um when Marty McFly <laughs> there's a dog um no <laughs> <laughs> when Marty McFly was you would if you called him a chicken Marty McFly would, would always turn around. Right. And he would come back. So with me, it's bullies. If I, if there's a bully, I'm, I'm no way. And I'm going to go and I'm just going to kind of try to diffuse it and turn the bullying back. And, and I just don't think that anyone should be forced into any kind of servitude, any kind of thing that they don't want to be. Why should we force or impose our will on other human beings, it's because we're terrified. So let, live and let live, you know? And yeah. I think that Alters was a force for good in that. Um, so I told you I was going to say my, my thing about Alters, and it was this. One of these days, if I get my way, there's a thing that's going to happen with Alters. 
when it comes time to maybe making a TV show or something, and someone buys the rights and we go off and we make a TV show of that, that series, I'm not just going to have a trans actor play Chalice. No, we're going to have a trans actor play a character who is not seen as, who's, who's seen as the gender that they live as. So in other words, what I heard was, I don't know if I mangled that, but the point is I heard a lot of trans actors saying we never get any representation and we don't even get any parts. Why can't, why do we have to play trans characters? And I completely agree. Why should sure. you play a trans character? If you're a sure. woman, play a woman. Right? That's right. Yep. So I know that one of these days, if I ever get my say, and if that ever happened, I would immediately say, yeah, okay, great. Let's have a trans actor for Chalice and a trans actor for any other part in the story. Because that's what we really need to be doing is just kind of getting over it and going back to the way that things should be, which is just, you know, be nice to people. You look at what people might associate with Christian values, the things that are taught, you know, especially in the South where I live, Christian values are things like um, be nice to each other, yeah. be friendly, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't crack on other people, right? Why can't we go back to that? Why can't we go back to September the 12th? Yeah, you know? yeah agreed. No, I think of... I always think of Douglas Adams' quote from Hitchhikers when he says someone was nailed to a tree for suggesting we all should be nice to each other. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I remember that very much. It had a big impact on me, too. <laughs> there you go, man. No, and, I, and that's great. Man. And, and you're 100% right. That is the next step. And it's been very yeah. interesting um, as people try. You know, George Lopez tried on his comedy and had a, and had a, a, a trans actor. Uh, playing next to him and everything, and it was great. And in fact, it was part of the story that right. uh, it was a trans actor that was that he was trying to develop a new TV show for himself, and it was going to be yeah. like kind of a gritty cop show. And and right. um, and I forget, and I, shame on me, I forget the name of the the actor that uh, he was. Uh, they were they were you know suggesting, but it was great. Yeah, man. No, I think yeah. Yeah. that's wonderful. And and yeah, I'm I'm for it. And again. That's uh, that's why I like talking to you, Paul. And again, look at all the three di different books that you're doing for Aftershock and everything, man. You got a fun <laughs> book like Beyonders. You got a hilarious sci-fi, you know, cloning thing going on with Replica and and uh, you know what you're doing with Alters. That's great. Are you? We're we're at two volumes. Are you going to continue Alters? Well, we're taking a break from it for a moment. Layla has another job uh, project she's working on, so we're going to take a break for it for a little while. Uh, we'll do Beyonders for a little bit, and maybe some other projects that are coming up. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, you've known me now for a long time. Yeah. Like, I'm very happy in the comic book space. I'm really happy doing Aftershock work. Um, there's a couple of other publishers that I'm working with. I've got, um, yeah, talk um, about but the problem, well, the problem is, um, the projects are not announced. So it seems okay. unfair for me to be the person that announces them. It's better no for problem. them to announce them. But I do have projects with two other publishers on um, both of which I love and I'm really happy about, um, so I feel like creatively liberated always, you know, like it's, it's been that thing where I get to create the stuff that I really, really love. And I also get to do like video game work, which I'm working on one right now and, and, and film and television and all kinds of stuff, you know, I do. And again, this is why I like talking to you.
Okay, let's take a quick break from the conversation and tell you more about our sponsor today, Aftershock Comics, who are doing incredible works. You've seen their titles on the racks of your favorite comic shops, a whole slew of fresh high concepts written and drawn by your favorite creators. And as you can tell from my conversation with Paul, this is a great publisher for him to tell many different stories in many different genres, alters, replica, and of course, currently, Beyonders. Unbelievable stuff. And that's just, you know, along with some of the other great books like Lollipop Kids from Adam Glass and Aiden Glass and Diego Yapur and A Walk Through Hell by Garth Ennis and Gordon Suzuka. In the weeks ahead, we'll be talking to people like Cullen Bunn, who will tell us about the Brothers Dracul. I went and saw a bunch of the Aftershock creators at the New York Comic Con, and uh, we'll touch base again with Steve Orlando. Frank Thierry, I haven't talked to Frank in a really long time, and he's one of my favorite guys to run into at conventions. We'll talk pestilence with Frank in the weeks ahead. Um, There's just a lot of really great books, and uh, the one that I discovered in just the last couple weeks, The Last Space Race from Peter Calloway and Alex Chabau, uh, I hope I'm saying Alex's name right. And uh, again, my buddy uh, Marshall Dillon uh, doing the lettering for that. But uh, really neat astronaut story in the near future. Likely the way uh, the space programs are going that more uh, commercial companies will take over uh, space exploration. It's already happening all over the world. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, as they tighten the belt on NASA, it seems like uh, the industrialists have to step in. And this is a really great near future story, The Last Space Race. So just among some of my favorite Aftershock books, um, I've told you before, I love Jimmy's Bastards. I've been on that book since day one. Glad that it's found a home at Aftershock Comics. And, you know, I just Mike Martz and Joe Pruitt, I trust their editorial eyes. I, I, I like uh, the pitches that they're receiving and what they're putting out at Aftershock. Uh, like I said, in the weeks ahead, I've mentioned Cullen Bunn, Frank Thierry, among the Aftershock creators we'll be talking about uh, for their books. But you don't have to wait. Check out full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on these books to order through your local comic shop at AftershockComics.com. All right, let's get back to our conversation now with Paul Jenkins on Word Balloon. You're one of those early examples that left the frustration of working for the big two. And these are my words, so you correct me if I'm mm-hmm. mischaracterizing them. But I do remember your last spin on Batman and all the the ridiculousness of Batman doesn't sit down. I think some of our listeners <laughs> might remember some yeah. of that ridiculousness. And um and mm-hmm. truly responding with, all right, fine. Um you've you've gone on, you you are in these other realms. We've been talking uh, about uh, these things on and off the air, about some of these other projects, and that's great, man. You, you're you're you've always been one of my fa- favorite uh, creative people, and I like your <laughs> ideas. I think you got great high concepts, and I'm glad that other companies are recognizing what you're bringing to the table, whether it's in comics or in these other realms. In one area, I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and I was really excited. Um, the Star Trek fan film Axanar. And those people, I loved Prelude to Axanar. It was true. I think it really is my favorite Star Trek fan film ever because it was so bold in its concept and execution to the point where they scared the shit out of Paramount. Right. <laughs> and, and literally right. got Paramount to kind of look at everything and say, all right, <laughs> maybe we need to re, like think how we're doing fan films, something that the Lucas people have done with Star Wars years and years ago. And you know something? It's their stuff. So they have every right to do that. Um, yeah. and, um, but I... But I really do. I, I you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm acquaintances with Rob Meyer Burnett, who worked on the original mm-hmm. Prelude to Axanar. And forgive me, I'm forgetting Alex's last name. 
Uh, Alec Peters, yeah. Alec Peters, yes. So yeah. Alec is yeah. uh, Captain Garth in Prelude to Axanar mm-hmm. and is kind of uh, the driving producing force behind uh, the, the original movie and now, and now right. the, the, the right. sequels. So you're directing. Tell me, tell me about what you're doing with Axanar. Uh, well, the first thing I did was, uh, you know, I was introduced to Alec, and Alec kind of fits in the profile of the kind of thing that I love and I promote, you know. Um, just as a reminder to you and maybe your listeners, uh, a few years ago, I chaired an advisory committee here in Georgia for the governor of Georgia, yes. um, and it was on the sort of evolution of digital technologies and, and game, you know, video game stuff, but it was also on independent filmmaking. Uh, sort of informally, and I would talk to the governor quite often about that stuff. Um, so I've always been a person that's going to be, you know, siding with the creator. Um, it goes all the way back to Mirage Studios and especially Tundra Publishing. When I was there, don't forget, we wrote the creator's Bill of Rights. You know, so I, I was did, right yeah, there when on. it happened. Yes, please. Talk you about know, that. I was right there when it happened, and I watched two people who had their own creation, and they owned and operated it themselves. Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, they have every right to do so. Um, and they controlled that license, and they should. You know, um, And it was really cool, and it was an amazing thing. But at that point, you can't tell me that it should be corporate creativity. You know, I did my corporate creativity, and it was fine. And, and by the way, you know, just as a point of clarification... Um, you know, the thing with DC, the bit that people don't remember, and I'll kind of remind them is my point about, you know, what happened at DC at the time was to say, Hey guys, this is a reminder. Let's not mistreat our creators. Okay. Let's, let's remember that the creators are the lifeblood of what you do. It may not seem that way as a corporation, but I'd like to provide a reminder, you know, we need to protect and preserve our creators. This is, this is the blood of what you do. This is where things come from. And another thing that people don't remember, so it wasn't a big argument with me and DC and Marvel and all that. It was, it was hey, guys, let's have a better conversation about this. Second thing, um, people may not remember this, but you know, I had said, uh, for example, um, there are lots of things I love working about with DC. And uh, um, for one thing, they're really, really good at uh, providing royalty statements and paying on time. You know, but people don't remember that. They they just remember the bad part, and I'm like, well, it, you know, it wasn't that bad, but I get it. You know, I'm with you. Bottom line, bottom line, I'm I'm a huge fan of of creators, and I'm a huge protector and mentor to younger creators, and and I do that as part of my company that I have here in Georgia. Um, it's part of what we do, and I'm always going to try and help younger creators and any creator to try to to help themselves. So I'm introduced to Alec and he's got this thing and it's Axanar and I just look at it and say, you made that? Awesome. <laughs> right? Like what? You made that with what? And he's like, yeah, we raised money. Well, brilliant. Like, that's amazing. Well done. And, and only then did I hear, you know, there'd been all kinds of like problems like CBS were upset or Paramount, I should say. Right. Um, it is, well, actually, you're right. CBS, because uh, it is complicated. They were all part of Viacom. And then when right. they when they dissolve Viacom, CBS technically owns the intellectual property of Star Trek. Right. Paramount right, has the right. rights to make movies, and so right, that's right. the divide. So, yeah. so I was even wrong to misrepresent and say Paramount. It really is CBS. But go on. I think CBS. You know, but here's the thing: I don't think anyone, like you said earlier, I don't think anyone's wrong. Actually, I mean, of course, yeah. understandably, CBS would like to protect their intellectual property. It's theirs. It doesn't belong to anyone else until it becomes public domain. Um, 
so they should, right? Good for them. Sure. Um, sure. That being said, I think there's a problem that you see um, when you sue your own fans, you know, because like the fans made that film and they, they kind of, they kind of sued their own fans. I'm not sure that was the best thing that CBS could have done. Uh, a better thing might've been, why don't you invite some of the fans in to come and work on your shows a little bit, you know, because they're doing a good job, right? Like it's, this is cool. And right. St- Star Trek fans are really, really, really into what they, what they see and Doctor Who fans are and Star yes. Wars fans are. Yes. My feeling is, you know, I'm, I guess I'm becoming a hippie or something, but I'm like, hey man, promote the love, you know, like love, yeah. and these people love it, right? So let them express their love for the project by doing this really cool thing. Um, and it went sideways. And I think then once it went sideways, then some of the fans and some of the people involved and people started arguing and, there were accusations. Um, you know, Alec has come under fire uh, from a few people. And the reason he's come under fire, they say, you know, what happened to the money? And the answer is, well, the money got spent on a lawsuit, which is miserable, you know. Um, but, you know, here's the best accounting I can give. And, you know, we hope to do more. Uh, here, Alec had to come to, a, to an agreement with CBS and, and Paramount about how he could make the last chapters of Axanar. Yes. Um, But, you know, there was one person who was quite vocal about about Alec and not believing or trusting Alec. Um, So I called him. And I was like, hey, man, let's have a conversation. Um, And then I told him, look, you know, I'm coming onto this project and I'm going to direct it. And I actually um, uh, worked with Alec to kind of rewrite the script as it was. And so we've locked the script up to the point where we can shoot it. Um, But what I would say is, the person that I spoke to who wasn't really a big fan of Alex was, was incredibly passionate about Star Trek. And I said, actually, mate, I can kind of understand your passion. I mean, the problem is it's like you two are divided by a common goal. You want really cool Star Trek stuff. So, you know, rather than be involved in any of that negativity, what I told Alec and the person that I spoke to and anyone else is turn all that around, you know, make it, become the thing that it was always intended to be, which is a fan film that demonstrates the love for the project and the medium and, and the intellectual property and do it with happiness and never say anything negative publicly. Just, just let's go back to making what this thing was supposed to be, which is a really, really cool film. That's where we're at now. That's awesome, man. No, I agree. And, um, I like you said. I, I just want to see a cool fan film, and again, based on Prelude to Axanar, I think it's a, tr- a tremendous story. I think the execution was great. When I heard you were going to get involved, I was very happy about it as well. And yeah, I, 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 I'm I'm on Alex's side on this in terms of, like you just said, make a great fan film that all of us really want to see. And um, that's the great. I mean, geez, man, I I remember. Well, first of all, in the books, they've always had those strange new worlds. Uh, mm-hmm. Collections of short stories that are submitted by fans, and they're great. They're fun. A lot. Yep. I mean, it's hit and miss, but I, but I think the hits. It's like again, these are just people who really love Star Trek, and and that's fine. Like you know, CBS did. They 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 figured out these new guidelines. Alec is like great. I'm glad that they were able to settle things, and Alec moving forward, and you guys moving forward with XNR following those guidelines. I'm sure it's going to be a great story, and I know that uh, this is this is going to happen. Have you been watching uh, Discovery? 
Um, a little bit, yeah. Uh, like the big, <laughs> the biggest problem with me always, John, is when people ask me, "Have you been watching?" Time. My answer is, "No, no, no. All I've been doing is um, uh, working." Yeah, and <laughs> raising my kids. <laughs> Uh, I don't get to see anything. I don't get to play many video games. I never, I see the occasional movie. I don't read any books. I never see any comics. Not really. Um, it does. It never stops me. But I've seen a couple of the episodes, um, and I like it. I, I mean, I'm, my problem is this. I like stuff, right? So I'm not a person that must dislike Tom Brady because I like you know, Aaron Rodgers. I like Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and, and all of them, right? Because I like good stuff. And so, you know, I don't have to uh, dislike Discovery in order to be a pure Trek person. Or You know, I liked it fine. I think it was pretty cool. You know, looked good to me. Well, I won't deny um, I've had I had my little go. No, you continue, Paul, and then I'll tell my nonsense. Well, I, w- I would say this. I see a thing like they made the Klingons look a certain way. Right, yeah. um, that seemed to be a big, a big thing, um, and and you know maybe I'm just too wishy-washy, but I felt like I could see both sides really and sort of agree with both sides. I understand why you'd want to keep the Klingons the way they've always been. They're cool, right? Yeah. Klingons are awesome. Um, one of my favorite things I ever did at a convention. Uh, it's probably the most surreal time I've ever had. Was a Klingon guy who was a big fan of mine, but he, and he wanted to introduce himself, but he stayed in character. Uh, so he comes up and, you know, he's like, Mr. Jenkins, uh, you know, we of the Klingon Empire would be honored if you join us tonight. Uh, and I'm like, great. Because, <laughs> right? you know, I'm, I'm in, right? So we go and this guy's already tanked up. By the time I get there, he's three sheets to the wind. This guy's so drunk. But they're, they're, the Klingons are all there. I told him I was a spy for the Klingon Empire. He says, oh, good, then tonight you should drink blood wine with us. Little did I know that this guy was so into it that he had made his own recipe for blood wine and it had vodka and, like, meat in it. Right? (laughs) 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 Well, tonight you should drink heartily with us. Uh, We know you're one of us. Here's your blood wine. And I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But one of the most surreal moments, and it is literally the favorite moment of any convention I've ever been to, that guy was so drunk. And he, they did Klingon karaoke where they had to sing the words in Klingon, and they'd all learn their songs in Klingon. And he does, I touch myself, I want you to touch me. He does that song in Klingon. <laughs> drunk off his ass at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, so I've got this big thing for Klingons. I love Klingons, right? That's awesome. Um, but at the same time, I saw the new design and I'm like, oh, that's a cool, man. That seems pretty cool. That's a different, interesting take. Well, if you wanted them to stay one way, you hated the new take. And if you're more like me, you go, oh, that's pretty cool. I like the way they did those Klingons. But I guess both sides are right, John, you know? No, I hear you. I, so- I softened up on the Klingon look because I liked the explanation that, you know, there are the 24 houses and right. they are, the Klingon Empire is comprised of many planets, so maybe right. there are some planets that we hadn't seen yet. So I was cool with that from that standpoint. I'm like, all right, that's okay. Did not mind the upgrade in the technology. That's always going to happen. Yeah. I, 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 again, I'm of two minds because also Enterprise managed to be a prequel that while it's you know, upgraded to the technology, it's still kind of you know, colored within the lines. Um, The thing that disappointed me about Discovery, and I'm sure my listeners are bored of this, but I just really felt like when it came down to characters and storytelling, 
it was it was a little oversimplified, and and I right. and I was disappointed because to me Star Trek always represented smart sci-fi and great analogies. There's that great Next Generation episode as we speak of uh, the trans community. Uh, they they kind of in a good metaphorical way, you know, had this non-gender planet, and and yeah. uh, you know, and had this character that fell in love with Riker. And mm-hmm. considered leaving its, you know, society and then, you know, gets reconditioned to be part of the society. And I think it was a great statement on homosexuality, the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, really did, uh, you know, yeah, I thought I thought it represented the story well. Whereas I thought what we got in Discovery was uh, kind of Saturday morning must- mm-hmm. mustache twirling bad guys. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, and also just... Like a, a story that didn't make sense. I'm still confused exactly why Michael Burnham, the lead character, gets a medal at the end of the the, the series. It's like, well, she did start the war or help start the war, and yeah, she she kind of like didn't let the Klingon planet blow up, I guess. But I'm not really sure why she. I mean, it, it should have been like, okay, you're reinstated. You're part of the. You're part of Starfleet again. That's enough. I don't think she needed the round of applause and the, and the medals that she got at the end of the thing. And then right, Michelle right. Yeoh's character. Um, I, I appreciated how she was, you know, playing it to help. And I think she's a great actor, but, but that said, I, I just, there was a lack of logic in terms of allowing her to live, allowing her to slip away. And it's like, this is a mass killer that you've just kind of, you know, let run around. And it's like, I, I, I think you could have done all this mission and still kept her under heavy guard. And, and, and it's just, Again, it's just whatever. And also, I'm still not convinced exactly why Michael Burnham needs to be Spock's uh, sister. I, 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 well, I mean, I'm, it's okay I'm, to be raised by Vulcans, but, you know, whatever. Well, I, got a, sure I got a laundry list there, Paul, obviously. I guess. I mean, I'm not sure whether <laughs> to yell out, uh, like, nerd alert or spoiler alert. You know, you just gave free. the whole thing away, I guess. Oh, I'm uh, sorry, lad. And if you were going to watch the rest, I apologize. I kind of figured you were like, no. all right, that's enough. No, uh, no, no, no. I just think it's really funny. It's like, spoilers, mate. You know, like, I read the Bible the other day and Jesus died at the end. Spoilers. You know, <laughs> uh, apparently, you know. <laughs> it's crazy. It's like, uh, but yeah, I mean, you are the person that I kind of love in all of this, right? Because it's like, look, you, 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 love, you love the characters. You love the world. You're really into Star Trek. I think our approach in Axanar is to be very much in the, the, the original spirit of Star Trek, you know, and yeah. to look at the way that that world was constructed. We're not doing anything. In fact, there's a thing about Garth, I think, that when people find this out, they're going to see something in him that very much is into character. You know, I'm with you. Listen, if you don't like it for the point of the story and the characters, you're correct then, because in your opinion, it's not to do with like what the, what the Klingons look like. Where we want to go with, with Axanar is speaks, I think to the heart of Star Trek fandom. It's, it's about the, the concepts that the fans have always responded to. It's by fans of Star Trek, you know? Yes. It, it keeps elements of the integrity that go all the way back to the original television series. And that's kind of a beautiful thing, because if you're telling a new story in an interesting way about characters that have been around for a really long time or implied, you know, these characters are implied in some of the early Star Trek episodes, you know, that's fun. Because it's not like we're telling 
an old story or retelling a story, we're telling a new story. People, I think, will really respond to it. I'm excited, man. Yeah, you started to say that uh, before we we got uh, disconnected for a second, but that, yeah, there's an aspect of Garth that you're going to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we want to do a thing with Garth that people will find out. Obviously, I don't want to give it away. Oh, sure, sure. Well, well, you'll see something in Garth. Uh, you know, Alec and I worked on his character a little bit, and you know, I made a suggestion about something. Um, part of me said, all of those captains, all of them, have always had something about them that is special. Um, what's Garth? What's his special thing? And And let's not make it simply he was tactically brilliant or he did a thing that won a war. Cause that's just, you know, two machines clanked against each other. This machine was stronger. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the worst story anywhere, which is two people had a fight. One person won. Right. Right. So, you know, we talked it through and that's kind of what I feel I brought to the project a little bit was talking it through and saying, let's look at all these characters, but especially Garth. Yeah, if he if he if he does a thing at Axanar, that's really cool and it's really interesting. But what's special about him? And once we hit on the thing that could be seen as being special or memorable about him, that's when Alec and I both looked at it and said, "That's what people are going to remember." So hopefully, the fans will really respond to it. That's excellent, man. Now you say the script is locked down. Do you have an idea of when you might be starting to shoot? Um. <clears throat> yeah, I really don't know. It's it's been a bit in flux. Um, I've heard a couple of different things about that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously going to be ready to go once we can put it into my schedule as well. Got it. Um, we've locked up, we've locked up the cast. I think there's some stuff that Alec needs to do in order to get us ready. Um, there's going to be a, a very small convention coming up at the beginning of November. Um, it is called Axicon oh, and it great. is here in Atlanta. Yeah. So it's going to be basically for fans of Axonar. Um, they can come in, they can meet some of the actors, they can you know, talk to Alec, and I'll even be there. <laughs> uh, I never consider myself special enough to be met, but there you go, I'll hopefully add something to it. And um, Axicon will be a chance for people to just kind of re-enthuse themselves and, and re- remember their love for the project, get really re-energized, and at that point... I think we'll sort of announce how the project's going to be retooled, when it's going to go, and what we're aiming for. So that'll be the place to know, which will be Axicon. Well, I'll be looking for the uh, news from Axicon, then. That's excellent. I got to meet uh, J.G. Hertzler last year in San Diego. And uh, and yeah, it was good. great because literally it was right before the con started, like during the day Wednesday before preview night, and I'm at, I'm at my favorite bodega buying a cheap sandwich because it's like one of the best like little my my little secret about uh, you know San Diego Comic Con where it's like all right I know I can go in there get a decent sandwich for a reasonable price, and JG Hertzler's there with his girlfriend they could not have been nicer. And yeah. I immediately, even you know, makeup or not, you can't help but recognize the guy. He's so big and imposing, <laughs> and and he was right. so cool. And and truly, I'm I'm a fan of every character he's ever played uh, in Star Trek, mm-hmm. and and really excited about uh, his role in Axner. I hope he'll be yeah. part of the uh, the sequel. Uh, but yeah, Absolutely. he's great. Tony Absolutely. Todd is great, and I forget the name mm-hmm. of the actress that was from Galactica that plays one of the captains as well. And uh, she's. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, I, I'm not sure it's my place to 
say, I mean, I guess okay. people, what I should do is to say, um, why doesn't everybody go to the Axonar website and they'll see information about Axicon and at that point I won't step on anybody by announcing anybody that's in it that I probably shouldn't. Uh, so then that will be where people can get their information if they that go to the Axonar website. Yeah, and they can learn all about Axicon and maybe if anybody wants to come over to Atlanta at the beginning of next month, um, we'll have some fun. Some of the actors will be here. That's excellent, man. No, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And by all means, that's the perfect way. And I, and let me say as well, as much as I was hating on my little aspects of Discovery, I'm excited for the second season. I watched the um, – they're doing these uh, short treks as they lead mm-hmm. up to the second season in January, and they're doing these short uh, 15-minute uh, stories. And the first one already dropped for October. And I thought that was great. It represented Star Trek in a great way. So – you know, I'm opt- I'm I am optimistic, and 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 you know, every I think a lot of TV shows in their first season uh, have their little you know things that they got to work out mm-hmm. and stuff. And so again, uh, and also, man, there you know, Captain Pike is back in the second season. I love mm-hmm. I love the idea of Christopher Pike. I love the idea of these early years of Star Trek. Um, and yeah. I'm cool, you know, I'm cool with Gregory Peck's grandson playing Spock. Let's see how he does. It's you know. I'm, I'm I'm optimistic and my mind is open. It's okay, but uh, yeah, I'm 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 psyched for more Star Trek. And also, God, I, not to like dwell on a bad subject, but Leslie Moonves leaving CBS might be yeah, one of the best yeah. things to happen to Star Trek because as I, as I've heard through the grapevine, he kind of didn't get Star Trek to the point where someone said when the J.J. Abrams movie made money, they're like, you know, uh, we could make a Star Trek series. We should consider it. And his response was, "Okay, Star Trek. That's the one with Darth Vader, right?" And oh, you know, li- and was a genuine response from him. So, you know, was not the biggest Star Trek fan. So maybe now there are people in place at the network that are going to be like, "Hell yeah, we're going to do more Star Trek." And it sounds like Alex Kurtzman as well, uh, the J.J. Abrams uh, writer that has since now become, without a better description, the Kevin Feige of Star Trek right now. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, and they've announced the Patrick Stewart Picard series. I'm totally on board for that. I don't think Patrick Stewart would accept a shitty story. I mean, I think if they come back to him with a lousy story, he'll be like, sorry, guys, try again. And also Michael Chabon is involved in the Patrick Mm -hmm. Stewart thing. Brilliant writer and a a nerd, a a full-fledged nerd. So I think, uh, again, I think it's in good hands. So, yeah, I'm very optimistic about CBS's future with Star Trek and Discovery. And and everything that follows, but yeah, I'm really glad you guys are getting the chance to make your fan movie. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. again, uh, Axicon sounds great. I'll be looking for the announcements of that. So very very cool. If you got a quick second, I just want to wrap up and ask you because you are so involved in the Atlanta and the Georgia scene of production and everything mm-hmm. that's been happening there. And I know you were on the mm-hmm. governor's advisory board. So yeah, I mean, as as an insider, this is incredible. I mean, really, Atlanta has really become right there with Hollywood because of, I guess, economically, it's easier to make, you know, things in Atlanta, but it's amazing. Every movie seems to have that Georgia logo there, the peach logo saying, yeah, there, you know, Atlanta and Georgia had a hand in this. So, you know, yeah. T- tell me about that evolution. Well, you know, it's good and bad, right? Um, there's a history of what they call runaway production states. Um, this is where I'm about to be vocal and probably annoy a couple of people, but <laughs> Runaway production states are historically states like South Carolina, North Carolina, Michigan, Louisiana. They get a tax credit. The film industry goes there. They lose the tax credit. The film industry runs away and everyone loses their job. (laughs) 
and it's horrible. It's been terrible. Louisiana's lost, you know, states have lost it, and all these people lost their jobs. But here's Atlanta and Georgia. And what I said to the governor when I first met him was, you have a chance. Listen, you'd be really naive. You want to try and compete with Los Angeles. It doesn't work that way. You don't compete with Hollywood. They are the entertainment industry. Sure. But what you can do is you can do a thing that they don't want to do or they cannot do very well. And at that point, they want you and need you. And then they'll always try to keep the tax credit here and they'll bring production here all the time. So... As to whether the governor and the film office actually listened to me, jury's out, right? Okay. But they agreed where I told them that I felt they were about to make a mistake was that we were housing big films. We were providing tax credits to big projects, but there was no growth at the grassroots. You have to do everything if you're doing management. You know, I'm actually consulting and building a project with a, with a company right now. And I come in and I build management and I build from, from the, you know, the design team and all that kind of stuff, right? You don't do it from top down and you don't do it from bottom up. You do it from both directions. So if the big movies and those big projects are top down, then you also need the bottom up. You need to make sure that you level up your creators, that you train people properly, that you teach people how to be producers and directors here, that the agencies come here, that the distributors have an outpost here. And that's not what's happening. We're not teaching people how to be independent filmmakers here. We're basically making it harder for them right now. So what we're doing is actually kind of housing massive projects. But watch what happens if and when the tax credit leaves. Boom, gone. And we, of all places, shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't be doing that, and I hope it will change. What we should do instead is treat Georgia as a partner with Los Angeles. Like I said to them, don't compete with LA, don't compete with Hollywood. Instead, work with them as your partners, but what we should be doing is new media. We should be what's now and what's next. We should be in augmented and virtual reality storytelling. Um, now, this is something I consult on and I speak on all over the world. I told you about my futurism conventions. Yes. You know, I do this stuff everywhere. If we help to build the environment where new forms of storytelling are devised and built and maintained here, especially in the, in the field of augmented reality, um, but especially you know, to somewhat in VR, I'm not a massive, people that know me know I'm not a big fan of VR um, in terms of its longevity. Um, I, I love the medium, but um, it's got to morph into, into augmented and mixed and variable realities. If we can do that in Georgia, we will be doing the thing that I think the world needs, which is cross-media creation and development. Um, the reason I'm a big proponent of it is I just so happen to be one of the very few people that does it. I do comics, novels, video games, virtual augmented reality, film and television. I am the person that does all the things. And so I want Georgia to be the place where all the things get done because L.A. has a really hard time conquering that and New York is not really that interested, so we could be the third leg of the stool. And that's what I want Georgia to be. The question is whether we're going to be it. Interesting. And no, man, I know. We're not there yet. Well, I, I hear you. And, and, and again, we've had these conversations for years, and you've been telling mm -hmm. me these exact things. So I'm glad that you're still pushing for that. And I know how tough it is to get uh, the big bosses to kind of see what you're saying, and both uh, on the uh, governmental level and also the uh, the business level as well. So, uh, no, keep it up, man, because 
you're right. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Everyone is saying storytelling is kind of, you know, getting a kick in the ass in the right way of people are really exploring it on these various platforms. And as a participant in all these various platforms, uh, that's why I come to you, man. And, and want to hear what right, you're thinking right. and how things are going. So, no, thank you. I and, went to uh, I, you know I went to consult recently, John, with a couple of large corporations on on the advent of like future storytelling and virtual and augmented reality types of storytelling. Um, and I walked in the room, and almost the first thing that I was asked was basically, how can we separate people from their wallets using virtual reality? Wow. And and you know my. My answer was not like that. Yeah. You know, you've got to do it with the, the, the trust of the creator and the storyteller. You've got to learn things. You've got to probably fail at a couple of things because it's a new medium and it's a new frontier. We've got to learn some things as we tell stories. That's what I did in the video game industry way back. So when Amy Hennig and I were working on Soul Reaver, you know, a, a story about Gnosticism in the form of a video game in the mid to late 90s, you know, no one expected us to be able to tell that kind of story. And Amy went on to do this incredible work with Uncharted and all the work that she's done. One of the best people in that industry. So having innovated in in some of these areas, like in, in the game industry, there's nothing that stops us from innovating but us. And that's really the problem right now is we have to stop stopping ourselves. We have to go forward. And we're not. So I'm hopeful that Georgia will come about because otherwise that peach logo is going to be an endangered species and that it'll just be pick a state, you know, Idaho. Yeah, you're next, it work, Idaho. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And Idaho's next. Yeah. Wow. No, you know, I hear you, man. You know. No. And again, I appreciate that perspective, Paul, because I'm even seeing it in my uh, broadcast business as they uh, the place I left, I was telling you, I got let go of uh, this one company at the end of 2016. They bought a third of Podcast One. And and yeah. the broadcast side is like, hey, we really, really want to get into podcasting. And we had all these cre- – they had a big meeting at the corporate offices. We really want to do this. And um, they had a lot of us that worked for their radio station saying, yes, we want to do this. Um, you know, can we at least get, you know, some payment for doing it? We're not asking for the moon. And they're like, oh, well, we're not sure how we're going to like actually pay for this beyond <laughs> you with your own good graces making this stuff you know, and not getting any extra money for it. And it's like, well, that's great. Uh, and, and that's why I was kind of, as much as I was downsized from that company, kind of relieved and said, well, that's fine. I'll, uh, I'll keep making Word Balloon and, and keep growing it on my own. It's mine. And and I've been just fine, and you know, as I'm sure a lot of independent filmmakers and other uh, people trying in these platforms are doing their thing. But yeah, so yeah. it's yeah, it's uh, you're right. This is where the struggle is, and also the confidence, like you said, you might have to make a few things that may bomb. The Pythons, I was watching them. Uh, it was something that was made in 2013, and they were talking about meaning of life. But then they really went into a macro discussion about. Um, how they made things. And, and Cleese made this really good point of, God, we were so lucky in 1969 to have some executives at the BBC who said, all right, go make the show. We trust you based on your track record at the Frost Report, and that was the week that was, and these other British yep. shows that they had worked on together. We don't know what you're doing, but you guys are comedy writers. Just do your thing. As opposed to right. now where there are so many executives who feel they really need to get involved on the creative side. 
and 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 be yeah. these gatekeepers. So yeah, I mean, it's again, it's not only us hardworking you know, people trying to get something done. It's even the guys like the Python guys that 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 kind of suffer the same kind of roadblocks. So yeah, absolutely crazy. Well, dude, pleasure as always. I want you to get back to uh, your wife and everything that you got going on on the personal side. Good luck with all of that. And on the creative side, man, just just thrilled, man. Honestly, I, I think uh, the Aftershock books are terrific and excited to hear what uh, what other uh, comic projects you got coming up and everything else you're doing creatively, man. It's always a pleasure. So let's uh, let's not wait a couple of years. When you got something new to promote, please come back. Absolutely, John. Always a pleasure to talk to you, mate. Terrific conversation with Paul Jenkins. I hope you enjoyed today's Word Balloon. I was pleased to give it to you. Uh, of course, it was brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Again, if you want to help the cause out and subscribe to Word Balloon, go to wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad, or go to patreon.com slash wordballoon, and uh, that's where you can uh, help me out. Is Word Balloon worth the price of a comic book a month? Is it worth a dollar a month? If you think so and are enjoying the entertainment that I try to provide every month, you can help me out by subscribing to Word Balloon. Thank you, as always, League of Word Balloon listeners. This episode of Word Balloon is brought to you by Aftershock Comics. Again, shaking things up at your local comic shop with hit series like Baby Teeth, Donnie Cates, and Gary Brown. Walk Through Hell from Garth Ennis and Goran Satsuka. Hot Lunch Special, Elliot Royale and Jorge Fornes. Beyonders, of course, from Paul Jenkins and Wesley St. Clair. Lollipop Kids from the father-son team of Adam and Aiden Glass and Diego Yapur. Great stuff. Again, I'll be talking more to other creators. I hope you'll join me for some of these conversations coming in the weeks ahead, but uh, you don't have to wait. Check out full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on these books to order through your local shop at AfterShockComics.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, League, for your support. Great stuff still to come later this week, and uh, we're going to start, or I should say wrap up, October with a big interview at the end of the month and I uh, can't wait to share that with you but also in just a couple days two great conversations with uh, two great artists to celebrate Inktober and uh, that's with uh, Sean Crystal who uh, not only is a wonderful artist in his own right and talks a lot about inking in our conversation but he's the host of Ink Pulp Audio one of my favorite comic book interview podcasts um, he has that great artist perspective and uh, can really get into a deep conversation with artists that he respects and admires, his peers and his heroes. And it's a great conversation talking about that and what he's been doing lately as well, art-wise. And really happy to welcome Sanford Greenback, who has a wonderful new series with Dave Walker and Chuck Brown, uh, Bitter Root, that'll be coming from Image just next month. And uh, man, they let me see the first issue. It's great. Uh, as uh, Sanford describes it, think of BPRD in during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. Really, really cool story and a very interesting way to have uh, the historical backdrop of a lot of African-American history. But it's definitely a great sci-fi, steampunk, monster tale. It has its own voice. And uh, it's great to talk to Sanford about it and what else he has going on. He's got a great digital series at Webtoons called The 1000 based on uh, some great animation that he's been working on. So it's wonderful to catch up and talk to Sanford Green and Sean Crystal later this week on Word Balloon. Join me and look for the uh, new episodes in just a couple days. Also, if you're a a boxing fan, you might know that I've uh, been doing the Big Bout podcast. 
I put out a couple episodes last month. I have a new episode this month with uh, Bill Detloff, who is the editor-in-chief of Ringside Seat. He's a wonderful boxing writer. Uh, my interest in boxing has sparked up again, and I think the current scene and the past scene are worth uh, covering podcast-wise, and uh, I hope you like my own spin on a boxing podcast and a great conversation with Bill on the latest episode of Ringside Seat. That's also on the Word Balloon feed. I want to let people know about it, and hopefully uh, you'll, you'll try it out and find it interesting. And if you're, especially if you're a fight fan, I think you're going to enjoy what I try to do on the Big Bout podcast on every episode. I have great classic interviews that I had with some wonderful uh, historic writers that are no longer with us and uh, other participants. Uh, but uh, also I will be talking to uh, people about the current boxing scene and boxing's past on the Big Bout podcast every episode on the Word Balloon Network. And of course, there's the Oh Yeah podcast with Art and Franco and Scoot and sometimes Mike Negan uh, and sometimes Why, but uh, a great uh, podcast of just a lot of fun conversation between uh, my friends who are great artists and Mike is a wonderful guy involved with uh, the comic book convention business and uh, we always have interesting stories. We all reflect on our in the latest episode about uh, what happened at New York Comic Con, and uh, I hope you enjoy that as well as part of the Word Balloon Network. So thanks a lot for listening. There's some great stuff to catch up on this week. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.